It's the TEH podcast episode number 106. I'm Leo Notenboom of askleo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig from macmost.com. So how's life, Gary? Oh, uh, it's, you know, pretty good or the same as, you know, 2020 uh, has made it <laughs> all the same. I saw somebody post a funny comment, you know, saying, like, I forgot what year it was. And somebody said it's 2020. And I... And I <laughs> And I was like, you know, it basically it's 2020. It's always been 2020 and it always will be 2020. That's uh, There's a bad sci-fi short story involving all that. It really is. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, I, I don't know what day of the week it is, but I definitely know it's 2020. With <laughs> yeah, I can miss that. So, um, it's interesting. So I was about to mention, so as I think most of our listeners know, we record this using Zoom. We will occasionally, well, we have once we've turned on the cameras. That was episode 100. But for the most part, we're just recording the audio using Zoom because it's convenient. The audio quality seems good. I have been listening to a couple of uh, other podcasts, both tech, um, Smashing Security is one that I've, I've recommended here before, and uh, Not Tech, uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is an NPR radio show, actually now records uh, remotely. And as it turns out, both of these folks are using Zoom. And the reason that I know is that every once in a while, they clearly make some comments that, that indicate they are looking at each other. <laughs> so they, you know, they've got their cameras turned on, unlike us. Um, but I just find it really, really interesting that Zoom, of everything out there, um, has really, really taken over. I shouldn't take it over, but has, come, has, has found its own as a solution to this uh, pandemic-related work-from-home requirement. Um, and as you were mentioning before we started recording, Gary, Zoom has been upping its game. They have made um, improvement after improvement, um, you know, responding to many of the security concerns that were that were raised initially. But um, it's uh, it's been very interesting to just sort of see what they what they're doing and how well they continue to do it. We talked about it, I think, once the the shortly after the pandemic was starting. Uh, yeah, we, at least once. Yeah, we were. Yeah, I think we were talking about it. Um, in the sense that uh, everybody expected Skype to be the solution, and Skype yeah. is nowhere nowhere to be seen. Exactly, <laughs> right. and other things as well. I mean, there's people that are confused as to why, like, why why not use FaceTime or something? But you know, a lot of those solutions are very consumer based. How do you talk to like a friend? Just make a phone call, but it's a video phone call. Right. You know, Zoom is very much like about meetings, recordings, things like that. And we sound like a commercial. <laughs> we should point out that we're not getting paid and they don't even know we exist. We're not getting paid, um, but 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 I did in fact invest in a few shares of Zoom. So there's oh, full, okay. full so disclosure. Full, full, full disclosure. disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done that yet. Maybe I should look into it. Um, um, it might be a little too late now, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe. Um, it's one of those, th it's one of those stocks you wished that you'd invested in about a year ago. Sure. It's interesting because this, uh, next week, actually, I'm doing my first virtual lunch with, um, uh, gosh, there's a bit of a story here. So as you know, I started at Microsoft in 1983 and, uh, the person that I ended up working with at the time on day one is someone that when I left that original group, uh, we started having breakfast together like once a week uh, in a nearby cafeteria. 
Uh, when we were in different buildings, we ended up having um, lunch periodically, you know, like once a month or so. Right. And uh, we ended up inviting uh, someone else who ended up joining that first group back way, way, way back in the day. So, you know, 1983, we have been having lunch periodically uh, for whatever the math is. Uh, you know, the, the almost 37 years we've been doing this. And uh, of course, the pandemic has stopped us from actually meeting face to face. But one of the uh, one of my friends suggested, hey, let's just have lunch together over Zoom. It was never really about the food anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah, so it's, exactly. it's, it's actually, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Well, as a side note, one of the things you can do with Zoom, of course, is set up these uh, fake backgrounds and uh, virtual backgrounds, they call them. They work even if you don't have a green screen, but of course I have a green screen. So the, it, it the works a little bit better. Uh, my friends and I, for the last, gosh, multiple years, now that we've all left Microsoft, have been meeting at a local cheesecake factory. And as it turns out, DoorDash has made backgrounds available for multiple different restaurants that DoorDash actually oh, uh, services. Clever. clever, I like it, yeah. And I have downloaded the Cheesecake Factory back background, so it'll feel like I'm there, but I'm not. Right? <laughs> oh, that's just, clever, yeah. Just, just for like the ambiance of, uh, of, the, of the effort. So um, the, other, um, the other thing I was going to mention is I have been a recording fool this afternoon. Uh, prior to uh, stepping in to record this podcast, I uh, have started recording <clears throat> more of my uh, my videos. I forget what your workflow is like, Gary, if you're doing it like one a day or if you batch them all together. Um, I just basically one after the other did like about four or five of them uh, right in a row. I know that you end up, I think you're editing these all by hand. I actually just uh -huh. produced the, uh, the raw files for uh, Connie, actually the same person who's going to be uh, editing this audio um, to, uh, to have some fun with. So it's, it's been interesting. We've been learning a lot about cameras because I've mentioned the new Sony that I'm using, uh, green screens, which turn out to be both easier and harder than you think. Uh, it's, it's been an interesting process, but I think we're starting to get the workflow down. Yeah, I used to batch uh, them and do them at the beginning of the week, Monday, you know, uh, dedicate basically starting Monday morning and going forward and very often just doing them all for the week on Monday. But I stopped a little, about a, about a year and a half ago. I switched my production and I actually, uh, it takes me about half a day to make each one out because I throw a lot more into the videos today mm -hmm. than I mm -hmm. used to. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, but I remember what it was like. <laughs> <Use a bunch. laughs> you yep. know, be, barely be able to talk by the end of it all. Yes, yes. And and if I sound a little scratchy, it's for exactly that reason. <laughs> yes. So speaking of scratchy, you had Wi-Fi <laughs> Wi-Fi problems. Well, okay. So we talked about this uh, several many episodes ago, and uh, to sum it up, I thought my Airport Extreme was probably getting too old. Uh, I decided I wanted the biggest, baddest Wi-Fi router to reach the places in my house that just didn't get Wi-Fi service. Um, 
and improve the Wi-Fi surface of my house. I went out and bought myself a Netgear Nighthawk high-end one, brand like 400 bucks or something like that. Just I wanted the best thing out there and installed it and it really wasn't any better. <laughs> that, that was the upshot of it. I then determined it was the DirecTV Genie box that was interfering. Oh, that's it right. Yes. Moved the Genie box to the side of the house instead of in the center of the house and added an extension. The extension creates a second Wi-Fi network in the middle of the house that pulls from the main one. And, uh, and I went with that. And since then, I've just been disappointed day after day after day. Uh, really isn't any better than it used to be. My family tells me it's not any better than it used to be. Um, I hated having to switch networks and right. very often because the, the slower network, the extension network, is the stronger Wi-Fi signal, especially in the middle of the house. So very often, it would pick the stronger Wi-Fi network over the weaker one further away, even though the weaker one would work perfectly fine and give me much higher speeds. Right. It was a pain, real pain. And I got so sick of it that I decided that I, you know, I sure I had spent all this money, but I spent all this money and I felt I was actually like one step backward and I just needed to spend more money. I mean, yeah, no <laughs> uh, well, it was like, do, do I sit here and be grumpy that I spent money and now things are worse? Or do I actually be grumpy that I spent even more money, but maybe I fix things, maybe. So in a moment of, of weakness that turned out to be good, I went and decided to buy a new one. I actually looked at Netgear has some extensions that right. work with this box, and they supposedly use the same uh, you know, SSID, so they look like the same box. But then I heard some bad things about them, like that they're actually setting up a second, a second one that just happens to have the same name, and now you just have less control over which one you're you're going to. Oh, right. And, uh, and other things are saying that it really doesn't help and all that. So I decided to get rid of all of that, forget about it, and go with a mesh network system, which is pretty much the only thing I haven't tried. Of course, who makes a bunch of net mesh network systems but Netgear, so no thank you. Um, <laughs> other places that I was not willing to buy from as well because, you know, past histories or just not good reviews, which left me with Eero from right. Amazon and, and Google's Nest system. Um, I flipped a coin. That, not really. I just I decided to go with Google, right? Alexa will I, flip a coin for you, yes. I kind of flipped it. I mean, I could have easily, if my mood had been a little different, gone with Eero. But uh, so I bought a three-box uh, Google Mesh system. You know, there's a central one and two satellites. Right. I lamented that it's not as functional or like as high tech as the Netgear, which has like a control center that looks like you're you're about to fly the space shuttle. I mean, there's like a million checkboxes and radio buttons and and menus and and sub menus and like a million things you can do with it and google nest wi-fi has basically uh an app on your phone not even yes. a control center you can access your computer with barely any controls so i did it i installed it and lo and behold i've been super happy ever since uh the first thing the installation was pretty easy um, not as easy as it could have been, and I see why a lot of people complain online that you they eventually have to call Google 
just to have them walk them through it because it's basically, you know, maybe there's 10 steps involved and eight of them are super, super easy. And two of them are super easy if you know where to look. And if you don't know where to look, they're impossible. Right. Um, fortunately, <laughs> right. I, you know, I play around with stuff all the time and I was able to figure it out on my own in like 10 minutes, but I was still a little like, you know, bothered by the fact that it's like, why make everything super easy except two necessary steps or something in there. Anyway, I got it all set up. And I found uh, a few things. First is that uh, I was able to, the main one is in my office, third floor, which is always the problem, having it basically a third floor be where the main router is. So that's where the main one is for Google Nest. I put the second one two floors straight down. Um, and it connected and said it had a perfect connection. Okay. Then I put the third one two rooms or you know, basically the other side of the house on the same floor as the second one. Mm -hmm. Then I found through testing that I had a nearly perfect signal every single room of the house, including places where it has been extremely problematic in the past. Not only that, I was able to go all the way in the backyard, all the way to the back corner where I keep the trash cans by the alley <laughs> and sit there and be like, hey, I'm surfing at like, you know, seems like perfectly responsive. The Xbox, which is actually the Apple TV and the Xbox are in the basement. So three floors straight down from the main box. And it's always been a problem. I have a hundred uh, megabit service and that's what I get in my office. But it, I used to have to settle for 20 or maybe even as low as 10 megabits in the basement where the Xbox and Apple TV are, which are two very important devices to have connected to fast Wi-Fi. Yes. Now I can report hundred megabits down there. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm really happy with the coverage. Matter of fact, there's a room in the house where I like to sit and talk and use FaceTime with people. And I usually uh, kind of curse their bad connection. It's really my bad connection because now with Google Nest, <laughs> it's seamless in that exact spot where I used to talk to people before and have trouble. I didn't really think it was my end, but it turns out it was. <laughs> um, now, what are the drawbacks? Well, one drawback is exactly one ethernet port there's one ethernet port on the main uh you know device right and i have two things i need to plug into it one is the printer the other is my computer because i don't i want my mac pro to be wired wired yep now go back a couple months when i talked about this before and one of the things i was disappointed with with the netgear was i wasn't able to get my wi-fi printer working with netgear some research told me that, oh, that's because it's a modern, advanced uh, frequency switching um, router. goes between 2.4 and 5 gigahertz. Um, and an old printer like yours won't work with it. Oh, okay. So I hardwired it. Well, I'm glad I decided to just follow an instinct and try to hook it up by Wi-Fi to the Google Nest because it instantly worked. Cool. <laughs> so uh, I have my printer Wi-Fi again which means I can move it anywhere in the house. Yes. So that's great. And I have the one Ethernet connection, and I can use that to hook up my Mac Pro. Perfect. Oh, so it's an, it's an outbound Ethernet it's, connection. Yeah, one, there, there's an inbound one and one outbound. Now, I guess oh. the idea is if you really wanted to, you could go switch. back like we did, you're, you, yeah, like it's the 90s, right? That's what we used to do in the 90s is you get a switch well, and just set it to switch mode. 
And no, no, it's not the nineties. I mean, there <laughs> yeah, are very, there Obviously, are very valid reasons to have more wired I devices. I haven't had to do that uh, for a long time because most devices, like even the box that comes with my uh, service, which I don't use, mm-hmm. has a whole bunch of Ethernet ports on the back. So if you want to hook up a bunch of stuff, it's interesting because my uh, my comp the the box I have to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have the option of swapping out the box. It's the Comcast. Uh, router and it has four ethernet ports on the back which is insufficient for me i have i have more wired things than that Uh, so i've actually done that second level of prioritization where my desktop machine is wired directly to uh, the router but then i also have like a, a, a 20 port gigabit router I'm sorry, gigabit switch mm-hmm. um, yeah. sitting with it that you know handles all the other stuff that I'm connected to. And in fact, I think we're talking over it right now. Uh, so yeah, there's there's one one just seems like it would never be enough. Except sure. and, and this is one of the things that that I was kind of kind of thinking about as you were talking about how um, you were uh, <laughs> disappointed that you didn't get the uh, um, um, the full. Uh, NASA interface experience. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm about to go into that. <laughs> okay, go, go, yeah. Oh, okay. So, so anyway, so I have that all hooked up fine. Now, as far as that NASA experience, um, I needed to do some basic things. So the first thing I needed to do was I needed to reserve some addresses. I want to make sure my Mac Pro, for instance, is always using the same IP address. And I also want to make sure my printer is always using the same IP address. And sure enough, I was able to do that. It's kind of weird because, you know, Google bought Nest, right, at one point. And and they bought it partially for the brand name. They had something called Google Wi-Fi before, which was like version 1.0 of this. Mm -hmm. And version 2 of this, they just used the Nest brand. So there's a new app called like Google Nest Home or something. And that's what you use to set up most things. But if you go and say advanced features, it actually takes you to the old Google Wi-Fi app, which I had to download too. And that mainly doesn't work for a lot of stuff, but the advanced features actually work. So in there, I'm able to do reservations. So say, you know, this right. computer, this IP address, the printer's this one. And the other part of that is port forwarding. I was able to set that up. Right. So now I can you know, have a, a dedicated path from outside of my office into my Mac Pro so I can screen share my Mac Pro because uh, I have a static IP address. And that, uh, so that worked out really well. Like that was like mainly what I needed all those controls for was that. Hmm. And also setting up a guest network, which also was something they allowed. Matter of fact, tons of more features than I've ever had before for guest networks. Right. One of the things the Google Nest system does is there's a bunch of controls. You know, I could, you know, be like the dad at dinner time saying, okay, everybody off Wi-Fi and hit a button on my phone and like, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, so there's a lot of controls, including controls for the, uh, for the uh, guest network too. Matter of fact, not only can I control like what happens and what the guest network can do, I could even cross over the guest network, which means I could make the printer available to the guest network. So that's really interesting because one of the main reasons I've not, I have everybody on the main network is because everybody needs to uh, use the printer. But I could basically do a little more security here and have just my work stuff 
on the main network, right. make everybody else use the guest network and give them access to the printer. So that was kind of interesting. A um, bunch of other features I haven't even tried playing with. So the only thing I'm, I'm missing is I can't hook up a hard drive to it because there's no USB port like there is the Netgear and there was on oh, right. Apple Airport Extreme. Now, the solution for that is getting a uh, network-attached uh, drive, you know, a right. network-attached storage. And uh, <clears throat> strangely enough, when looking into that, a lot of systems that were popular years ago have been discontinued. It was like that got popular for a while, and now it's not right. or something. Right. But there are some things. Uh, however, most of those require you to actually connect an Ethernet cable right. to the, the system, which I don't have a port for now. Um, <laughs> So there's that. Well, we have I a just, solution. We've talked about a solution for this. So the solution would be a Wi-Fi one, or, or just hitting, uh, doing a another. So another thing attached to power. You know, another little box that has, you know, eight Ethernet ports, and putting that in uh, right. in the mode where it just extends it. I could do that. So that's adding basically two more devices: the drive and one of these things. And the switch, right? And the switch. Yeah, I could do that. Um, I'm probably not going to because uh, what it comes down to is two MacBooks that need this, and I believe they're pretty much cloud machines anyway at this point. So I'm going to change some user behaviors to make sure <laughs> everything is stored on iCloud um, so that really nothing is lost if those the drives on those machines would go. That's how my MacBook is. My MacBook, I actually... You know, sometimes I do, you know, hook it up and do the time machine thing. I wipe it a lot because I'm do, always playing around with this. My machine where I play around, right. installing different systems and doing things like that. Uh, like if I'm going to do a video on how to wipe your drive and reinstall, this is the machine I do it on. Right. So sometimes after I put everything back together, I hook it up to time machine. Sometimes I don't because I realize there's really nothing on this machine. Like if the drive failed, I wouldn't be doing a restore from time machine. I'd be just setting it up, you know, signing into the cloud stuff. So, so I think I can get away with not having the network attached storage, you know. And so, in other words, simplifying my setup rather than making it more complex by adding two devices. Sure. sure. Um, and that's what I think I'm going to go. The bottom line is, is that I'm super pleased with how this mesh network uh, from Google works. It was three hundred bucks, and. I'm like just like so, and and then and my family's super happy too. They re reported that wow, everything works and it works seamlessly. What there, a concept! There, but even you know the Netgear even had some things where I would just be on my laptop or on my iPad and just be doing something actively, going to a web page, go to another web page, another web page, and all of a sudden, oh, you no internet connection. Like what? And I look and the Wi-Fi is disconnected, and I go over and I reconnect to Wi-Fi. Okay, now I'm back. Well, what happened there? That never happened with the Airport Extreme, and it hasn't happened since I went to uh, the Google Nest. So something to do with the switching or something on the on the Netgear? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it'll, it'll look for it coming soon to eBay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, somebody wants to cheat with a, with a rousing story that you know. No don't story. listen to this, don't listen to don't listen to episode one hundred and six of this podcast. Yeah. Just. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I, I wonder if like, I mean, I'm in I'm in the city here. It, when I go and I click on Wi-Fi networks, I mean, it's off the page. I'm right. off the screen, way right. off the bottom. I've got apartment complexes nearby, close enough that they show up. I've got houses. 
it, it's an incredibly long list of Wi-Fi nodes that are recognized. Right. So there's a lot of that. I've got, I know I have the Verizon fiber optic uh, line going right by my house with a repeater next to my house. I don't know what sort of interference that gives me, <laughs> but the repeater is a fairly substantial piece of equipment hanging from that wire or that's like coupling with the wire. So it's, it's like, above ground. It's, it's, it's yeah, it's an above pole. ground and it, you know, it looks like a, you know, the, the fiber optic cable actually I could, I mean, it's really right outside one of my windows. <laughs> it goes out, you know, around and then doubles back into this huge cylinder that looks like it's something like out of star Wars you know, with like ridges in it and stuff, you know, I mean, it looks like it, you know, part of a cannon that would be, you know, and then it doubles back through that and then doubles back again and continues on its way. And I looked it up and it's like, Oh, that's a fiber optic, you know, uh, booster and repeater. It's basically boosting the signal. It is a cannon. It's a data cannon. It's a data cannon. And that's right by my house. And then the box for, uh, Verizon is also, Right. Um, sitting at one corner of my house, the opposite corner. So I've got so much stuff. Uh, I'm sure the radio frequencies just bouncing all around my house are incredible. And maybe a, a Netgear router somewhere more suburban is just incredible, the distance it covers. Oh, right, right. You know, but here in an urban situation, a nest, you know, a, a mesh system, um, where you're never really going to be trying to connect that far away from any one of these nodes. Oh, and by the way, is that a bonus? I get, I have OK Google now. And I apologize to everybody who's OK Google just <laughs> responded to that. <laughs> um, but yeah, two, the two satellites are, uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever, you know, Google Assistant boxes. Oh really? Oh so yeah. oh there oh oh I you mean so, literally walk up to the box. Oh literally okay. like the box has a speaker in it. it. Strangely the the main one, the base one in my office where I might actually use it, mm-hmm. isn't. That doesn't that doesn't do anything. No microphone, no speaker. It's not it's not a Google assistant. But the two, which are, you know, one in our living room and one in the well, it turns out the dining room, um, both now respond, you know, I can say okay, and then Google and ask for weather and ask for stuff. And I declined all the, you know, hook up to my account kinds of things because uh, I I was kind of caught off guard by that. I was sure. like, oh, hook it up. And then suddenly now it's like hooked up to my calendar, my email and everything. And it's like, I don't know. Uh, I, I haven't thought about what's on that account, what I'm doing with it. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, so it doesn't really, you know, I forget. Time I do, ask you, it to do, stuff. do you have um, Amazon Echoes? Yes. So I've got, okay. so suddenly without really trying, I have one uh, HomePod for Siri. That's in my office. I mean, that one I kind of <laughs> talk with. I have uh, two, e- two Echoes in the house, one that was in my office. And then we got another one for uh, another part of the house. But then I moved the one from my office into the kitchen. And so now we have two Echoes. And now suddenly we have two Google Assistant devices. So suddenly there are five rooms in my house where the uh, NSA can Living <laughs> here, everything going on, um, and you know, we didn't. Re- I didn't really try for it. You know, I know people that are like, "Oh, you got to see what I've got. I've got all these. Things. I've done all this," and it's like I really haven't done anything. And I still have, pe- you know, uh, assistants I can talk to in most of the rooms of my house at this point. It's funny the uh, the Amazon devices we have them, of course, and uh, I swear that we use them for essentially two things: uh, timers. Yep. And uh, uh, turning on and off the lights in the bedroom. 
Yeah, we don't even have any lights like that, but timers. I, I do it weather all the time. Occasionally weather. weather, yeah. Yeah, I, I am always, always asking them for weather. So I, that's the only thing I've asked Google for so far is, <laughs> is weather. Uh, I ask Alexa for weather all the time, and I, I do timers with Alexa since uh, the Echo is in the kitchen. Right. Um, and, yep. and my HomePod, I'm constantly asking for weather or temperature updates, um, you know, just to see how hot it's getting outside, that kind of thing, or how cold, depending on the season. Uh, so, so to go back to your to your Nest and, like I said, your yeah. your um, spacecraft interface, uh, which sounds more like a cobbled together combination of, you know, a little bit of Mercury interface, a little bit of Apollo interface, and maybe some some uh, space shuttle interface that may or may not work. Um, one of the things that I've come to realize about these devices, and I have one too, which I'll talk to about in a moment, is that we're not the customer, right? I mean, the yeah. fact that you can plug a few things in and it works, uh, even with, you know, steps eight and nine being particularly difficult, but, you know, that, those are also solvable problems, I'm sure. But for the most part, you know, it's a plug it in and it works kind of a thing. That's like the 99% use case. There is no need for anything other than um, an app on your device to to control, you know, to do the very basic of yeah. And I think that uh, devices like the Amazon Echo have started to train people to look to their devices, to look to their mobile phones for these kinds of apps rather than uh, their, uh, their laptops or their computers or desktops. I have the uh, Samsung SmartThings mesh network here at home. And it's basically somewhere in between your experiences. We do have occasional dropouts. Uh, it's not nearly as frequent as what you described with the Netgear, but it's not so frequent that I have uh, you know, done anything about it. The most important thing I've learned how to do is how to, on the app on my phone, reboot the main router. And that solves like 95% of the issues I've ever had with it. Mm. The satellites, I could reboot them individually, but I typically don't need to. It's the main box. Now, in my case, I don't have it acting as a router because, like I said, the Comcast box is required. So, fortunately, uh, they have the ability to do pass-through where essentially all it's really acting as is a, uh, a mesh network of Wi-Fi access points on somebody else's network. Mm -hmm. Which, um, so... I'm, I was hoping, kind of hoping you would have, you were going to say Eero when you said which one you chose, oh. which way the, cor the coin flip. And the only reason I ask that is because Eero, I keep hearing about over and over again. And if I were to switch, right, if there was something to, to push me over the edge, um, that would be the edge I'd fall over, right? I'd probably right. you know, dive into that one and just sort of see how well it performed. But um, you know, your story about, about how well the Nest is working for you is, is actually really encouraging. Yeah, I mean, I've spent more than $700 at this point on networking equipment this year, but at least I'm happy now. <laughs> you know, uh, whereas at the $400 level after just buying the, the Nighthawk, right. I was not happy. I was very unhappy right. with it, and my family was unhappy, making me even more unhappy. So, um, so yeah, it's... Uh, it's definitely uh, 
definitely at least the end of the story. And maybe I, you know, I probably should put the Nighthawk. I, I can't return it. It's been more than 90 days. Sure. Um, as I bought it in March. So I probably will um, maybe just put it up on eBay since it's fully functional for right. what it does. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just right. not the right device for me. Right. Um, and uh, and I, if I don't sell on eBay, it is going to be in the closet until 10 years from now when I throw it away. Yep. yep. <laughs> so. Yep, I have. I actually have a small collection of devices that fall into that same category. They are um, waiting for uh, expiration, I guess. <laughs> right? Yeah. I can't well, throw this well, away. Yeah. It's. I could use this. It's too new. Eventually, it won't be new enough, and then it'll go out the door. Oh, and by the way, there is there, for do. If I wanted to do network attached stores, there is another option. Uh, I could. My Mac Pro is hooked up. You know, is you know wired like I said before. If I wanted to, I could attach that drive to my Mac Pro, of course, and then make that available. Um, that's something I could consider. I mean, this is my work machine. This is where I edit video and do all of that. So the idea that I've got family members, you know, that may be backing up via time machine, white realm filming. You know, oh, right. That, you yeah. know, it, it's just not. Um, so I used ideal. to have an actual uh, NAS, a network attached yeah. storage device. And uh, it was okay-ish for what it did. Uh, it certainly met my needs for the time. The problem that I ended up having with it, um, it eventually did die. And it, would have, it, it had a short life expectancy anyway because it held four drives of a maximum capacity of two terabytes each which meant its maximum capacity in any kind of a RAID configuration was six terabytes, mm. which is nothing <laughs> these days, right? I mean, that's not a NAS anymore. You want, you want many more terabytes right. on your NAS. Well, it depends on your use. I mean, I was actually looking, uh, there's a two terabyte um, device from HP uh, that would have been perfect for what I needed because it was cheap and only needing to back up two laptops on it with very little data. Right, I mean, so would, would, what, it would have been nice. One of the so there's two reasons, two or three reasons to get an ass. One is speed, which you don't need for backing up. One is um, resiliency, right? I mean, that's the whole point of having it be a RAID array, typically in these devices, which you also kind of sort of don't need. So really, all you're doing is storage. And the way that I ended up solving that when uh, when the NAS finally, uh, you know. Uh, breathed its last breath um, is I've got an old desktop PC downstairs in my basement yeah. and it's running uh, Ubuntu as it turns out Linux and it has like three internal drives and five external drives and one of them is an eight terabyte drive all by itself. I mean that's plenty of storage and meets certainly all of my needs. The mm. places where NASA's really come into their own is in a corporate environment where you've got a fast network, you need fast hard drives, you need that, you know, you need zero downtime, right? You need the ability to swap out one of the failing drives while it's still running, which is kind of cool in concept, and most NASA's can do that when they're configured for RAID. But for what you're described, you know, backing up a couple of, of other machines or, uh, or the way that I'm using it as both archive and backup, stick a, stick a cheap external hard drive in an existing PC and you're done. I yeah. Mean. Yeah, that might be uh, something I might want to think about. Um, but I think the cloud solution might be uh, the most ideal um, sure, thing sure. for what I've got, unless some other 
machine or device you know happens to you know. I, I will throw out one more possible solution for you and i think it actually could work and although it does involve spending a little bit more money uh you can get uh let's see ethernet uh let's see how would this work for you what i'm thinking of is you can get an ethernet wi-fi adapter which means that um you can plug mm. in something that does not have Wi-Fi capability, but only an Ethernet port uh, to your Wi-Fi network using one of these. And I'm thinking that maybe that wouldn't really solve a problem. I mean, it would I'm be just looking for you to have a machine in your basement that's connected to your network that has an external hard drive plugged yeah. in. You've got an extra machine somewhere. I'm sure you do. That's all you need. Yeah, that's, uh, well, yeah, that's, well, do I? I mean, I, I could, I guess, repurpose something at some point um and then have that hooked up by wi-fi eh, i don't know i don't know it's probably again i keep going back to the simplest solution is to make sure that files on those two macbooks are only stored in icloud right um and you know it, it is incredible you, you mentioned before the whole we are not the customer kind of thing yep. uh, so many people that i see so many people in my life that have computers and they literally have no local files none like mm -hmm. and some of them have no files like files <laughs> you know they 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 have they have browser bookmarks they, they browser they've bookmarks, got they have plenty emails. of passwords yep. and they have emails and stuff stuff all stored in cloud stored stuff but the idea that they would use an application to create a document you know it's just a document of what <laughs> you know they, they're not <laughs> writing anything they're not creating presentations they're not doing spreadsheets they're not working on you know graphics or whatever they're using the computers uh, for lots of things but none of it is really uh something where you would save a file even some of them that are working on documents are doing it inside of systems like google you know google drive right and so they don't even think of it, uh, you know, um, you know where's that document being saved? I don't know. <laughs> it's just in go the, to my Google in Drive. The cloud. It's, it's in the listed cloud. there. <laughs> I go to it and there's my the 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 document yep. I'm working on. You've you've basically just described how my wife is now using her computer. Yeah. She's the one she's running a Chromebook Chrome, now. But yeah. one of the things that that enabled that is the realization that, you know, 99.9% .9 of what she does doesn't involve the machine at all. The machine is a glorified keyboard and screen with a mouse that allows her to access a bunch of online services. And that's great. And she's certainly not alone and it works well for her. The one case where that has actually fallen down um, is I have so far been unable to get her machine to print, uh, to print to our printer, our network printer. It's and trying to save paper. <laughs> it might be, yeah. It's an eco so machine. What um, what she does is she uh, prints to PDF, which is then stored in her Google Drive, and then she tells me <laughs> that she has printed something, and I open up her Google Drive and print the PDF to real paper from um, one of my one of my machines. It's a workaround, and she doesn't print often enough for that to be a problem. So. Yeah. The other thing that comes up a lot is photos. Photos is one thing people store in their machines. But even that, if you're using a cloud photo system, uh, you know, whether it's Google or, in my case, you know, uh, iCloud Photos, um, that's also just something that just doesn't need to be backed up anymore. I mean, someone like me is going to back it up anyway. But the main failure case of hard drive failure or laptop getting stolen um, will be saved by having your stuff in the cloud. For a lot of people... 
the main failure case, I believe, is actually something a little scarier that actually does want them to be backing those things up some other way. And that is mm-hmm. account theft, account loss. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, you and I, we've got, we've got our accounts locked down pretty tight, but the average consumer uh, who's like taking pictures on their mobile phone and something magically gets uploaded to, to iCloud or to Google or to somewhere else, mm-hmm. um, if they ever have a breach and lose their Google or Apple account, uh, which can happen, which has happened, uh, then uh, they do run the risk of losing the, the stuff that they really care about. So I do continue to encourage people to uh, come up with some additional backup solution that doesn't require uh, them to, uh, or actually, yeah, that doesn't rely on them never losing access to their account. Yes, and in addition to that, turn on two-factor. So, yes, please, 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 please turn on. Two-factor. It's really hard to have to do iCloud now without two-factor because there are so many, uh, so many of the newer features the last two years require it. And the two-factor that they that they require is like SMS, the basic one. No, it, well, uh, the main way it works is not SMS. It's okay. a private system through Apple devices. So. Uh, I get the two-factor codes, uh, well, not even uh, codes, I get the confirmations on my um, screens, my other screens. I can default, like, in an emergency situation to send me a code. Okay. Um, But mainly, like, I try to log on something on my Mac, I get a thing on my phone that says, somebody in Denver, Colorado is trying to do this. And I say, allow, and then it gives me, it does give me four digits on the screen, and then I type it in on my Mac. Um, so I never have to go to SMS if I don't, uh, you know, if I, everything is working right. This actually will end up being a great segue to, to, the, to the topic that I brought. Yes. The, um, uh, one of the things that I think really did a disservice to the security you know, uh, folks in general is this concept that SMS can be hacked. Uh, mm-hmm. There have been a lot of, of stories about that over the over years. And, um, and, you know, it, there's a couple of different ways to do it, right? You can, as it turns out, uh, if you happen to take control of or own a phone company, you can, you know, reroute SMS, which, as it turns out, apparently has happened in Europe. You can actually purchase access to a phone company. Um, huh. Yeah, just blows me away. <laughs> the more common one, of course, is SIM swapping or, or basically somebody um, performing some kind of a, a social attack uh, where they convince the phone company to move your number to their device. And now all of a sudden they get your SMS messages. The problem is that hearing about that has people scared that SMS doesn't work, that SMS is not a valid two-factor authentication mechanism anymore because it can be hacked. Uh, what they fail to realize when they go down that path, of course, is that, well, great, the alternative is no two-factor, right? You're not, you're not turning on any two-factor if, if SMS turns out to be the only one that your provider offers. Yeah, good, good point. There's still two other, there's still another factor. Yes. Even if one factor, yeah. But yeah, so, I mean, so for anybody listening who hasn't turned on two-factor and who is avoiding SMS, maybe it's the only one that is, is offered by the provider, use it. SMS is absolutely 1,000% better than no two-factor at all, right? It is an additional layer. Yes, maybe it can get hacked. It's extremely unlikely unless, for example, you are a specific target of someone. But for the most part, SMS two-factor authentication is so much better than having no two-factor at all. Um, And I know I get complaints from people that says, well, I don't have a phone that takes SMS. And I get it. I mean, not every account 
provider supports the kinds of two-factor authentication that work for everybody. I know that some do do voice confirmation, which is actually kind of cool, but not everybody does. So if you don't have a phone that does SMS, then you have to use something else. But for everybody, I mean, so many people have it now, do text messaging of some sort. Um, there's just no reason not to use it. So the segue is simply this, um, and this actually steps ever so slightly away from the uh, tech enthusiast part of this hour in that um, it's a bit of frustration on my part. So we'll call this the tech frustration segment of our show. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I stumbled across uh, an article on uh, davescomputertips.com. He's another one of, uh, he's one of us. He does tech support and he actually has several writers and one of the writers wrote an article called, uh, titled, Tech Site Journalism Reaches an All-Time Low. And what he was reacting to was an article that I, in fact, had already seen that uh, was discussing how uh, Microsoft was forcing this update and putting it in your face and didn't give you an option to opt out or anything like that. The update was simply that uh, the old version of Microsoft Edge browser is being replaced by the new Chromium-based Microsoft Edge browser. Um, that is literally what this article was ranting about in some negative way. And that's fine. I mean, that's, that's, that's an issue. Uh, it's not a big issue, but fine, it's an issue. The, the real issue that um, uh, this author and I have been railing against for years is the way that it was presented. Um, it was the, a classic clickbaity headline that says, oh my gosh, Microsoft is evil. Uh, they're doing this. They're ramming this down our throat for, of course, something that is, is very, uh, very innocuous, expected, and, and in actually, in most people's opinion, a good thing. The, the point is that there are sites, um, in fact, I can think of at least one specific one, that have gone so far down the um, let's do anything we can to get people to click through to our site so that we can show them lots and lots of ads, that headlines are increasingly clickbaity and misleading. They are taking minor issues and blowing them up into what sounds like major catastrophes, except they're not. Uh, one of the, the interesting little math exercises that I went through for myself some weeks ago is that uh, Windows 10 is now presumably, they were on track to, I haven't seen confirmation of this yet, but they were on track to being installed on over a billion machines. Um, that's one followed by nine zeros for those of you keeping track at home. That's a lot of machines running Windows 10. But what it also means is that you can then say that a million machines are suffering from a problem when a problem comes across that might affect a million machines. Sounds horrific. Sounds like something that would prevent you from uh, not only using Windows, but you'd be afraid, you'd be terrified of taking any updates because a million machines are affected. Until you realize that a million is one one-thousandth of a billion, uh, which means you have a 0.1% chance of encountering the problem that's affecting a million machines. Or, put the other way, you've got a 99.9% .9 of everything working just fine. Uh, 
which is has certainly been my experience for most of these things. I realize that most of the problems that a lot of sites talk about aren't just an even distribution based on randomness, which is what my little math example goes through. There's usually something a little bit more focused about the problems that, that Windows and users are encountering. But with so many machines installed, the numbers that, again, clickbaity headlines love to use make it seem like things are so much worse than they really are. Uh, Windows 10, in my experience, is a good, solid, I'm not going to say the best ever, but it's a good, solid operating system. It's pretty close to being the best one that Microsoft has done so far. Um, on the other hand, you know, there are people, of course, who will religiously say that, no, it's the worst one they've ever done. Uh, I have mm -hmm. at least a couple of, of folks I hear from fairly regularly who um, rail against it on a regular basis. And yeah, they're and they're they're railing it. Their railing is justified because they specifically are experiencing problems, problems that um, either they can't fix um, or uh, some of the changes that they just are are unwilling to accept. I get that you can't please everyone, but um, I, this this whole concept of uh, as as the this original author talks about, you know, tech site journalism reaching a new low. Um, it's not a new low. It's been happening and getting worse though for some time. And it's something that I, you know, I'm sure that you struggle with this as well, because as you know, when we publish articles or publish videos, uh, to be honest, it's all about the title, right? Titles are what people use to determine whether or not they're going to click through and read our article. Uh -huh. um, when it comes to video, it's title first and then thumbnail second. Uh, there's less, there, there's less clickbait opportunity in a thumbnail than there is in a title. Uh, but the titles I've been seeing and, and some of the consistency in the publications that are using them really have me concerned um, and, and frustrated because I know that real people who don't see the whole picture as you and I and, and other authors do um, may not realize that, you know, no, Google did not give a billion Windows users a reason to leave Windows, which was literally a headline that I saw in the last few months. Um, it's just not like that. Anyway, that's my little rant against clickbaity headlines. Um, it's not just me. I'm not the only one seeing this. Um, but it is frustrating for those of us who are trying to really help and, and, and calm people's fears. And in my case, at least, you know, giving them confidence is something that I really, really try to do. And it's hard to have some of these other publications working in what appears to be the exact opposite direction. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can see the point there. I mean, they're fighting for their views and they're doing that by removing confidence yes <laughs> and yes, we're trying <laughs> to uh and we're trying to you know help that out i mean in the long run uh you know hopefully what we'll get is a an actual like audience of people that learn to trust us and and you know become regular readers and viewers right. and listeners of our content and on the other hand you know these other sources will get you know that one click from somebody but there's no loyalty there they'll get you know, the next time they're just as likely to click on some other clickbait headline at some completely different website. One, one would hope, one would hope. Um, but it is true that, you know, everything's really all right, just doesn't garner as much clicks as, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. Right. And you could still do, you know, I mean, I've certainly have played with my video head, you know, titles in the past, but my content doesn't change. 
you know, I, so I've done things where I've tried to get, okay, let me, you know, stop doing these eight things on your Mac, you know, that sure. kind of thing. Oh, you know, but the eight things I'm telling you stop doing, believe me, it's, you know, it's very much like you don't need to do this and this is the best right. practice and all that right. stuff. Right. So I'm putting good information in there. And then once I, I come up with a good piece of information, then I think about, well, you know, is this the kind of thing where maybe I could put a, an interesting title that might catch people's eyes. Um, yeah, I guess certainly get catchy titles. It's the misleading ones that just, just. Oh yeah. I saw <laughs> something the other day. I can't remember what. Yeah. But there's, there's a lot of this going on, not just in tech news though. It's also in, uh, you know, work, current events, uh, world news, uh, politics, all this. There's a lot of, lots of stuff where, you know, I, I almost want to see a rating of headline to content. <laughs> you know, match. And how much? How well does this headline really tell you what's in the right. article? And you know, have like a like a rating scale, zero to ten, where ten is telling you exactly what's in the article. You know, and zero is this is the, the title has nothing to do with it. And I I think a lot of things would be like below five, and uh, you know, give you kind of uh, mislead you as to as to what it is you're about to be reading. We're living in a hyperbole. I, I want to say hyperbolic world, but that doesn't really really capture hyperbole as well as, as I would like yeah. it to. Yeah. Anyway, so what you been watching, guy? Oh, well, I, um, let's see, I, I, you know, I keep forgetting to mention this, but one of my favorite shows is something not typical for me because, and not typical for us to talk about because it's not te a tech show. Matter of fact, it's almost the opposite. And it's a show that's on the uh, History Channel and it's called Alone. And it's a reality TV show, but it's if somebody designed a reality TV show to take away everything that I hate about reality TV shows <laughs> and just make it, it's a it basically they stick individuals in uh, the wilderness and they have to survive alone for as long as they can. Um, I like it because there's no politics because the contestants don't see each other or communicate with each other in any way. Right. Um, and in fact, it's part of the mystery is how is everybody else doing? You know, how many, how many people from the starting group of 10 are still around and how many people have, as they say, tapped out, uh, you know, called for rescue. They can't do it anymore. Um, some people succumb to being alone for a long period of time. Others have accidents, injuries, or just can't find food or, uh, you know, uh, resist the elements because it's pretty, They've done it in different places around the world, and this particular one is way up in the Arctic. Um, so winter is coming kind of thing. Right. Uh, I do like the technology in that they it's primitive technology. You know, how, how do you build a fireplace and a shelter from scratch? Right. You know, nothing. Uh, how, do you, how do you make a net to catch fish when all you have is line? You have fishing line. You know, how do you make that into a net? Things like that. How do you keep, you know, so there's a lot of these little details that I find fascinating and I still find it tickles the same part of my brain that, you know, fascinates me about how software and hardware works, you know, seeing how shelters are built and things like that. Anyway, it's a good show. And this, this season, actually, they've even made it better because in the past, the idea is to outlast everybody and you don't know when it's going to happen. You know, if you, if it's day 70 and you've had enough, you don't know if there's only one other person in the competition right. and they've had enough too. And if you just wait one more day, you'll win because it used to be a half million dollar prize. Uh, or if there are five other people and they're going way stronger than you and you should just quit now. Uh, now they've actually stopped that and the, the idea is to just last 100 days. And I, I don't know how it's going to work. I assume they're going to split a million dollars between whoever lasts 100 days. Um, but I like that even better because you're not even competing against the other people. 
You know, you're just right. You it's know, a competition you, against you make, yourself. Yep. You make it a hundred, hundred notches on the, the, the branch that you're marking off, you know, <laughs> whatever. So, so I watch, uh, so I love that show and, uh, and I'm kind of just fascinated by it and enjoy, uh, every episode. I think it's the seventh season now. Wow. Yeah. They did it Patagonia one year, one year they tried to do it or was actually wasn't alone. It were two people. So like a husband, a wife or two brothers, two friends. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, but most of the years have been this and there's always like, it's not easy. It's not, well, yeah. it's some nice place where I would normally go backpacking. It's like the Arctic or some extreme, you know, like in Patagonia, there were like, you know, uh, very dangerous animals around and, uh, stuff like that. It's, uh, it, it's, yeah, these are like, these are all wilderness, like experts, people that have some background in, you know, army Rangers or, you know, been working their whole lives, like on survival, survival skills and things like that. Um, so not just, they don't just pick people out of like in the middle of Cincinnati and say, see how long you can make it. You know, it's people that, it's people that pretty much know what they're doing. Right. Um, right. and, uh, and you get to learn a lot by watching the video. Also there is technology stuff because they do get GoPros and other cameras and tripods. It's a whole big, they've shown this whole big, uh, set of equipment and they get two weeks of training on how to use the equipment. And they have to film themselves. I mean, there really is nobody standing there. Oh, so there, there is no camera crew or no. anything like that. They they wow. get once a week check-ins for medical. You know, somebody arrives, they weigh them, they take their blood pressure, temperature, and all of that once right. a week. I don't even think they talk to them. I assume they have they some leave. kind of a panic button. Or yeah, something. they have a pat. They have two panic buttons actually. They have the main one, and there's a backup, and they could they can make a phone call, satellite phone call on it and tap out and say, I've had enough. And that's, right. and then they get picked up. Um, so that's how, uh, yeah. So there's some technology and some, and the camera work is, is fascinating. Even how they get the batteries to last a week. I mean, they just give them a whole bunch of these things Sure. and they have to film themselves all the time. <laughs> anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we are, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think it was that we've been fascinated by Nordic noir Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, um, uh, cop shows, detective type shows, uh, filmed up in uh, in Scandinavia. Finland is the current one. We're we're in the second season of Deadwind, uh, and I'm getting used to listening to Finnish. I don't I understand like two words right now, but it's still <laughs> interesting. It's, 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 it's still interesting to watch and and read the subtitles, and I'm, I'm we're enjoying the show. Uh, the other thing, though, speaking of noir, is that we have started watching the new Perry Mason. Mm, yeah. And uh, that's on HBO, so it's definitely one of the premium channels. But it's actually really well done. We've been enjoying that quite a bit. It's set. Uh, for, this is not your father's Perry Mason. I mean, this mm. is this is a, a prequel, if you will, to the Perry Mason TV shows that we used to watch, where he was a, an attorney. Um, he's a private eye in uh, I think it's 1932 L.A. And it's it's actually, it definitely has that noir, film noir kind of feel to it. Uh, it's, like I said, very well done, enjoying it quite a bit. It's, it's definitely not an episodical in the sense that uh, there is, a, this is an eight episode, I think it is, it's either eight or ten episode story. So it really is like, you know, about an eight hour movie. But uh, it's, it's well done. It's being released one episode a week. And uh, that's what we've been enjoying lately. It's 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 kind of fun. Cool. 
Uh, let's see. So uh, I would like to point people at an article this week. Why can't online services tell me my password? Um, it's askleo.com slash 13946. The bottom line here is that it, it's a question we get. I'm sure you get this one all the time too. You know, I've forgotten my password. Can you please tell me what it is? Or can you mm -hmm. please tell Google to tell me what it is? Or Apple to tell me what it is? Or whatever. The short answer is if they can tell you your password, they're doing security wrong. They should not know your password. And why that is and how they can still confirm that you've typed in the correct password when you log in is what I cover in the article. Cool. Yeah, I, I have one uh, that is uh, out today. That's Wednesday. And it is um, a rare video where I get a little preachy. <laughs> uh, basically, <laughs> oh, no, I've, I'm always preachy. That's not rare for me. <laughs> I've been asked uh, probably about a dozen times in the last few weeks, why aren't your videos playing on YouTube, specifically on YouTube? Um, and so I've looked into it, and it, and it usually is their ad blocker. And then you could find tons of people posting online. Basically, YouTube changed, they're, they're constantly changing their web pages. And some change they made at some point in, is not working well with some ad blockers that are out there. So you go to play a video, and uh, the video just gives you an error. And it's the ad blocker. You turn off the ad blocker. What's the reason I found out people are confused by this is it's not an on off switch thing. Like you install the ad blocker, and suddenly videos aren't playing. It is really strange how it works. You can install the ad blocker. Everything works fine. Then all of a sudden it stops working. I mean, you have to you tinker with it. You can tinker with settings and all of a sudden it stops working. And then you can tinker a bit more and it starts working again. And I found everybody's experience is kind of like this. It definitely is the ad blocker. You definitely can fix it by turning off the ad blocker, but it doesn't necessarily trigger it by turning it on. So it's very confusing as to what's happening. It probably has a lot to do with cookies being installed or maybe variable things on the web page. But the answer is always the ad blocker. So I made a video about that just because so many people are asking me the question. Sure, sure. And then I got a little preachy towards the end of the video about uh, using ad blockers um, and how they hurt uh, the creators uh, of videos at YouTube and, and websites and stuff like that. And I feel I can preach kind of on my high horse there because I don't have ads at Mac most. So, <laughs> um, so, you know, I can come at it from like a, you know, uh, just a, a different vantage point there. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And the funny thing is I'm getting a lot of comments. I knew I would get some comments, some pushback and I'm trying to ignore more comments than I usually do. You right. know, just let that lie. Okay. Somebody said something like that. Let it lie. Somebody commented that, uh, they, uh, what were they doing? They, they, uh, oh, if the ad blocker stops it, I just download the video instead. And I'm like, oh, great. So you just traded an ethical crime <laughs> you know, of, of not viewing the ads for an actual legal crime of yes. copyright infringement. You know, uh, just pick your crime, I guess. Uh, other people have said, you know, oh, there's got to be a way to turn off the ads. I'm like, there is a legitimate way to turn off the ads. It's YouTube premium, which is $12 right. a month. And, um, but then people say, oh, that's too expensive. And my response is, oh, $12 a month is too expensive? It's a good thing they have a free option then. All you need to do is watch the ads. <laughs> you've, got, you've got your choices. You can watch ads and it's free or $12 a month and it's you know, no ads. So you, you know, it's like, what do you want YouTube to do? Just, uh, you know, they're offering you these two options. So anyway, anyway, that's, uh, it, it's kind of the one that's amused me the most so far this week. Sure, sure, that does... Yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's a uh, 
uh, a soapbox that uh, will not go away. <laughs> Plus, the fact is that everybody that's telling me that they're they're using ad blockers now in their comments, you know, I could block them on YouTube. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> so I just I thought about that. I was like, wait, that's kind of weird. I mean, I'm not going to do that, of course. But it's like you know, I, I you know, it's kind of funny. When, you know, it's like telling somebody when you go into a store, it's like, oh, I love your store. I shoplift here all the time. <laughs> well, get the heck out of my store, you know. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Um, yeah, I know. So far, the only people I've banned on my YouTube channel are folks that, um, obviously, the ones that get abusive. But um, it's just the spam. It's, it's you know. And w when you start talking about, um, uh, so a couple of my more popular YouTube videos have to do with uh, how to basically get back into like your Google account if you've forgotten your password and you don't have the recovery information. Mm. Anything associated with account recovery, you will end up with YouTube spam uh, promoting hacking services. Mm. So people that supposedly will hack back into your account for you, which of course is A, illegal, B, probably a scam, and C, expensive and not worth your money because you're not going to get what you think you're going to get. So yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, those guys get blocked right away. And actually, YouTube's uh, own spam filter does a relatively good job of filtering those out to begin with. But I did notice, uh, one final note on that, that just before the July 4th uh, holiday, a ton of spam, a ton of YouTube spam, starting around 5 p.m. on July 3rd. Um, just you know, trying to catch people off guard, right? You're not you're not moderating. Yeah. Yeah, I get yeah. very little spam that YouTube doesn't catch. I got a ton on the night of the third, and a ton on the night of the fourth that I had to go in and manually, you know, remove and block. And it's like, yeah, take. And I've seen that before over the last twenty years. Like I'd pick up in spam when it seems to be a time when, like, you know, people would be away from moderation. Huh. I'll have to pay more attention to that. Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, certainly over the last week or so, I've had to manually moderate a couple that I normally, more than I would have, uh, but I didn't associate it with that. Interesting. Anyway, well, I think that pretty much wraps us up for another week. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh106. As always, if you've got a comment or a question for us, you know to hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast, or you can always leave a comment on that show notes page. Thanks, as always, for listening and being here. We will see you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.